Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Well, what can I tell you about this week's show? Dan Schreiber is having a very well-earned little breather. He'll be back next week, don't you worry. And Dan is such a behemoth of a podcaster that in his place we have not just one but two people now the first person that will be replacing dan is athena kablenu now she is an amazing comedian a really good friend of ours you might remember her from our 20-hour comic relief special she was part of the guilty feminist team in that and actually when we were on the guilty feminist she was part of that show um she also has a bbc radio 4 show called athena's cancel culture which is out right now on Radio 4. You can find that on the internet as well. And she has a podcast called Keeping Athena Company, which is absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend that highly enough. It's such a brilliant podcast. Oh, I did say there was a second person. The second person is Athena's son, um, who you might hear in the background from time to time, really kind of coming in at the exact moments that you would want him to. So it's almost like we've soundscaped this episode, but I promise you it isn't soundscaped. It was a tiny little human who was in the background of the show. I really hope you enjoyed it. We had such fun making it. We love Athena. And I suppose all that's left to say is on with the podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four secret locations somewhere on Earth, and specifically in London. My name is Anna Tashinsky, and I am here today with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and our very special, exciting guest, Athena Koblenu. And once again, we've gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. And starting with you, Athena, what's your fact? So this is my fact. The 100 folds of a chef's hat represent the 100 ways in which you can cook an egg. Right. (laughs) Does that mean, Athena, if you can only cook an egg like one way, for instance, then you can only have one fold? You get a beret, yeah. (laughs) Chef beret. I was going to say you get a little cone, but that's (laughs) that's not a good kind of hat to wear, a big white cone on your head. (laughs) That's not not a good hat at all. Um, I I mean, I always thought I was an amazing cook. I'm like, you know, you see my Instagram, there's lots of food on there. But when I read that fact, I was like, I can't cook at all. I know three ways. That's it. (laughs) Come on, mate. Even I know more than three ways to cook an egg. What's your three? scrambled omelette fry oh boil boil i know four ways oh i'm still short not tried poaching anytime oh Oh. god yes okay fine five it's still we're a long way off we're five percent of the way there (laughs) and the rest of this section is just going to be us brainstorming other possible ways now i will say have you guys ever coddled an egg no coddling an egg is lovely it sounds like sort of taking it to bed bed with you, like a teddy. What, I think you sort it? of, you put it in, is it like you give it a bath? You put it in a little glass ramekin and then you give it a bath and that slowly cooks within there and you mix it with spices and things. That's very nice. Anyway, six. Like a ban Marie. That's like a ban Marie. Yeah. Seven. Yes. I think you can bake an egg. I once saw someone bake an egg. They put the egg in an oven and I thought, I've baked well, that's... an egg before. Have you? In an oven? Yeah, like um, like hollowed out a pepper and then broke an egg in it and just baked it. 
Nice. Oh, I've seen that someone put the shell. You can do this. You can just put the whole egg in the oven and bake it. Really? Which just, which just for me feels like like you don't really want the egg. So you're trying to wait as long as possible <laughs> before you have to eat it. Well, do you know something that takes even longer than your boiled oven egg? You can do it in the dishwasher as well. Oh, Very yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Wrap, wrap it up. Uh, or in fact, leave it in the shell and then just set the dishwasher running. Uh, uh, way. Another longer way of doing it is the 100-year egg. <laughs> very long cycle in the dishwasher sometimes it's called the thousand year egg uh and sometimes it's just called a really disgusting egg because i've had this egg i had it in singapore and it's kind of what they do is they put it in clay and salt and they leave it for a few weeks and it kind of turns dark black and really really sulfurous and sometimes they call it horse urine egg because it tastes a bit like horse urine apparently Lovely. Um, yeah this is one way of eating eggs <laughs> There is, yeah, they've got a recipe for that in my Chinese cookbook, I think. It looks unappetizing. It's disgusting. It's really really (laughs) It looks like, I think they came out of a recipe because somebody dropped an egg somewhere and they found it five weeks later and they're like, waste not, want not. And they said, well, we'll make it a recipe and then no one puts me in prison for being disgusting. And that's how that worked. If only we hadn't dropped it in this puddle of horse piss. (laughs) If life gives you horse piss. um... Well, that is the story. It was like a Chinese guy who had um, like dropped some eggs duck eggs in a muddy puddle of water and they had a load of calcium in the water and then he pulled them out and he thought well i might as well try them you know i might as well try that and he's like these are delicious i need to come up with a way of making them that is my approach to eating pretty much every (laughs) encrusted ancient bit of food on the back of the fridge i might as well just have most of it and see if I die. Do you know, this is great because when you've got a toddler, you find food everywhere. But, you know, so now I'm just going to give her the banana that's at the back of the couch because it's just cuisine, isn't it? It's just a new recipe. Exactly. Yeah. It's a delicacy. I have a slightly exciting advance on the hundred pleats oh, yeah. in the chef's hat, which is, this is from a book um, called The Culinary Guide from 1903. And it's by George Escoffier, who was a very famous, um, he was an early celebrity chef, not the earliest, but... He, yeah, turn of the century. Anyway, his book lists 202 ways to prepare eggs, excluding omelettes. And omelettes is another 82. And he also says that if you use the basic recipe for omelette norvegienne, it is, it is possible to produce an almost infinite number of variations of this type of omelette. And then he says in brackets, omelette surprise. Nice. So, wow. Yeah. That sounds gross. Do you know where the word omelette <laughs> comes from? Uh, oh gosh, I, I'd assume from the word for egg. Does it come from the Does it come from the om sound of meditation? Yes, and that. Shut up! No, no, I am. No, no, no I think that no, it isn't. It, isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it both isn't that, and I think I've just lost hearing in one of my ears. <laughs> um, it comes from um, the same word as you get amulet, om omelet, amulet, ah. and also where you get laminate. So it, oh. it means something that's something that's flat, basically. An old French word for something that's flat. And that's where we get it from. You know, apparently we've been boiling eggs wrong, according to... Wait, according to who? We. We've been boiling eggs wrong. Was it this internet? whole time we've been boiling them wrong? <laughs> I love these headlines. I once tried to search for all the thi- all that you've been something wrong your whole life. And they <laughs> yeah. love it. Yeah. And what is it? It's always like you've been tying your shoes wrong the whole life. Yeah, and then yeah. you look at it and some guy on the internet has come up with a ridiculously stupid way of tying his shoes. <laughs> Although you shouldn't say that because we actually did a fact about three years ago about how we have actually been tying your shoes wrong your whole oh, life. No. Oh, was so... that us then? Oh, you've, that, that was, was us, on the, us idiots on the internet. Um, yeah, we've been boiling eggs wrong and doing everything else wrong. But I tried to do it the right way. So this 
is according to MFK Fisher, who I think was this like amazing food writer in the 20th century. Mm. And she was very, very influential. And she said the key to boiling eggs is you shouldn't boil them. And because that cooks it unevenly. So if you boil it really hard, you drop it straight into boiling water. It cooks the white really fast. And by the time the yolk inside is cooked, then the white is massively overcooked and it's all rubbery. So I tried her way, which is you put it in cold water and then you let the cold water boil. And as soon as it hits the boil, you take it off. And then oh, you've yeah. got a soft boiled egg. Was it good? Or, well, it was the most frustrating 45 minutes of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you you should have put it in the oven. It was, should have. <laughs> it was 45 minutes because it basically super glues the shell to the white. So, you know, normally if you appeal a hard boiled egg, then obviously the shell comes off. Mm -hmm. And this, it doesn't shock the white away from the shell when you drop it in boiling water. And so it took, I mean, I'm not kidding. It took 45 minutes to peel the shell off. Wow. I lost most of the white along the way. Well, Don't do it. MFK Fisher was pretty amazing, wasn't she? She was the one who W.H. Arden said was the greatest writer of any style in the whole of America. She was a food writer. And she was the one who also said the perfect way to make a sandwich was to sit on it. So you make your sandwich <laughs> and then you have to sit on it for half an hour just to kind of warm it up and squash it. And then it's going to be a perfect sandwich. You're going to get a lot of customers returning their sandwiches <laughs> to the kitchen. That's why I was fired from my job at Pret. <laughs> Um, just on uh, on eggs and sort of how they're laid, you know when you've got an egg and you've boiled it mm. and, and you peel it yeah. and you know there's that gap between the white and the shell? There's like a little yes. air pocket, yeah. Mm. Uh, do you know what that is? It's the, I don't know what it is, but I know it makes it really easy to peel them. That's my, It's really handy, yeah, isn't it? It's really handy. If you find that and you crack the egg there, you can peel your eggs really easily. Top tip. Oh, that's that that's what it's for. That's that's evolution for you. It's evolved yeah. to help us peel our boiled <laughs> eggs. <laughs> um, no, it's a it's a little air hole for the chick. So in case the oh. egg is fertilized, the chick will be inside, and then it needs to practice breathing to inflate its lungs before it cracks out. So the way it does that, about a day before it cracks out of the shell, it pecks its beak into that little air hole oh and uses it like a snorkel and mask, and just practices breathing. Every day I take a step closer to veganism and this is <laughs> I know, step. sorry. I mean, how adorable is that? And we're here making omelettes out of it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, it's so cute. I'm probably going to upset you now because I've eaten ballot, which is a Vietnamese thing where the, um, the egg has a semi-fertilized chick inside the egg when they cook it. Um, I must admit, when I tried it, I couldn't. I could only eat the bit of egg around the. I'll just, I'll just eat around the fertilized <laughs> chicken. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's like it's a real delicacy in um, Vietnam, and sometimes um, used as a way of getting over your hangover as well. Ooh. I mean, you can't criticize it, can you? If you eat eggs, then there's no. It's not really that much different. But how do you time that? Do you get like an ultra scanner? <laughs> You give it like an egg ultrasound and you go, right, it's three weeks. It's good to go. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can. There's something about the idea of it. So obviously, you know. Well, if we're anthropomorphizing eggs, and we are now, all eggs in America have had a little shampoo before they go into the shops. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's so weird. So they love, in America, they love to wash their eggs 
But that creates a problem because they have this natural bloom on them. They have this sort of bacterial layer, which you, we can't see, but it's, or rather it keeps bacteria out. It's a way of kind of protecting it. So, you know, if the egg gets a bit of poo on it or whatever, as it's being laid, it's fine. It doesn't matter. And so in America, they love to give them a little shampoo. But then the problem is you shampoo them and then there are the higher odds of bacterial invasion. So then they have to refrigerate them and spray them with oil. It's a nightmare. So we don't do that in Europe. Um, it is illegal to wash an egg before you sell it to people. Wow. wow. Yeah. I always God. think if you kind of get an egg and there's a little um, feather on there, I always think that's a very, probably a fresh egg from a chicken who had a very good life or something. But I reckon there's probably a person in a factory just putting feathers in the egg. <laughs> <laughs> and the poo, yeah, bits of bone poo. Because if you get a bit of chicken poo, you think, oh, that's literally just come out of its arse. Hasn't even had time to lose the poo. But you're right. I bet someone's just taping it on. Mm. Because they do that with yolks. What colour yolks do you guys want? Like you, orangey. You, you crack your egg into the pan. Yeah, I, I, orange, I w- yellow. I white. want bright. I want a bright yellow yolk, like oh. literally like the sun, but like really deep, rich yellow. Yeah, mm, rich. That's yeah. It. I go yeah. with that. I want one that's more like Donald Trump's skin colour, like really <laughs> deep dark orange. You want to go orange? Mm. Well, people do seem to prefer orange, and it's because they think the chicken's like healthier. So yeah, if it's like really rich yellow or deep orange, they're like that shows that it's had a better diet. And so producers have realised that people prefer that, and so they just feed them dyed food. So whenever you get an egg and it has a rich orange yolk, it does not taste better, and it is not more nutritious. It is probably ju- in like ninety nine percent of cases, it's that the farmer has basically put um, usually an additive or some dye in their food. Sometimes, if you're going organic, apparently they'll feed them marigold petals or red <laughs> petals to help the carotenoids, you know, the stuff that dyes wow. carrots and stuff orange, to help them get into the egg. But it's just I think that is a good sign, though. If my farmer is willing to pick marigold petals in order to feed them to the chicken, something's going right. Throwing the petals around yeah. so that the chickens have a really romantic evening. You're right. Valentine's Day in the in the hut. It's, it's a huge deal. Um, very quickly on the hat itself, the hundred oh. cleat hat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So invented by Marie Antoine Carême, who. Um, was probably the predecessor to Escoffier, who Andy mentioned earlier on, probably maybe the first celebrity chef, I would say. I'm not sure. I can't think of anyone earlier. Uh, But he had these big hats because he wanted to have authority. And he thought the bigger and more erect your hat is, the more people would take you seriously. And so the better a chef you were, the taller it was supposed to be. And his was 18 inches in height. Yeah. I mean, this is a man's like <laughs> invention clearly this is like how can i make people respect me 18 inches that's respect yeah I, I kind of think it was a bit of that alexis sawyer who was around the same time he was the chef of the reform club um he wore a big black velvet beret with a huge tassel uh and the, <laughs> the whole point of that was he was too important to cook with it he was like the head chef everyone else the sous chef and stuff did all the work he was the big like head chef and if he wore a hat that was too impractical to do any work, it showed that he was really important. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's so clever. So, yeah, you, it was just too difficult for him to cook. Therefore, he's the boss. Pretty much. You should try it in the office, yeah. Andy. Come into the office wearing sort of mittens and a balaclava. <laughs> and sunglasses, so I can't see any words in front of me. And gaff, gaff, yeah. gaffer tape your mouth. It's like, I'm too... <laughs> this is sounding better and better. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James Arkin. 
Okay, my fact this week is that when men are played the sound of a baby crying, if they're told it's a boy, they'll think it's in more pain than if they're told it's a girl. Wow. Oh. Mm. <laughs> so what, men think male babies are macho? Is that... Yes. You've kind of got there, Andy. Almost. So this is a new study by researchers at the University of Sussex, the University of Lyon, Saint-Étienne and Hunter College City University in New York. And what they did was they played a load of cries to men and women, uh, parents actually, and they asked them whether they thought the child was in pain or happy or sad or how much pain it was in, etc, etc. And the thing is that before puberty, the voices of boys and girls, and especially babies, the cries of boys and girls are the same. There's no difference in pitch. But people, especially men, think that the male baby will have a deeper cry. And so when they hear the cry, if it's high pitch, they think it's in more pain. And because they expect the male baby to have a deeper cry normally, they think that the difference <laughs> means that it's in more pain. I, I think that's really funny that it's like, what's wrong with this child? And they're expecting like Barry White to come out of it. <laughs> and it's a high pitch, high pitch squeal. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> no, it's a baby. There's nothing wrong with your child. That's Where's the beard? Where's his beard? <laughs> uh, and yeah, it is quite funny. The, the thing that the researchers say is it could have implications for the welfare of children because it means that if a female child is crying, you might give it less uh, attention than if a male child is crying. Oh, this is why we have man flu then, clearly, because boys are so used to being given attention they don't need. Or, you know, then they grow up to be, oh, I've got a little cough. Oh, it's the flu. It's the flu. Whereas girls that's... are like, yeah, girls will go I... to work with like he headless because that's like, fine. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a scratch. <laughs> oh, my God. I think you might be hit on something there. That feels right, doesn't it? Yeah. I thought it was that male parents say, you know, they'll they'll listen to the crying and they'll think, well, a, my baby boy wouldn't be making a fuss unless it was something really serious. It wouldn't be disturbing me. <laughs> Well, that might be true as well, but this uh, study was specifically about the pitch I of the sounds. Well, so we just have to start complaining in a deeper voice in order to have people take notice of us. No, you have to complain <laughs> in a right? much, much, much higher voice to make up for the fact that you have a higher voice already. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we have to, or we have to speak in deeper voices all the time, That's and right. then the contrast to our high complaint. Don't go too high because then it will just be dogs that care. And <laughs> <laughs> Dogs are pretty comforting. I think that might work for me. Yeah. Um, it's weird the response to babies crying, right? That you get... Well, I'm always told that once you become a mother, I guess, specifically, you have a very instinctive response to babies crying. So I hear babies crying and I think that's a really horrible noise. And I think actually there was a study on the noises people find most grating and babies crying was the worst. But like, is there a difference? Did... Do you find there was a difference once you had children, Athena, where like you hear a baby crying and like a bit of you dies? Yes. Or does it sound lovely? Does it there, suddenly sound wonderful? <laughs> there's only one difference, and that is when you hear the baby cry, you lactate. That's the only difference, really. Okay. It never gets more or less annoying. It just you just start leaking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's definitely. I think it's. I mean, I would speculate it's evolution, isn't it? Because when it's your, it, what's really funny is. Babies have unique cries. They all do. But sometimes you go out in public and there'll be a baby that sounds like your baby and that baby will make you lactate because it will just have oh, a see. similar pitch or a sound, right? And I'll be like, oh, that sounds like uh, that sounds like one of my kids. And then it's, oh, dearie me, here we go again. Um, I forgot my pads. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can, sorry, I can only apologise to any listeners um, who can hear the baby in the background and have spontaneously started lactating. <laughs> 
lactation is so weird, though. So I, there's tons of stuff I didn't know. Like, people can lactate when they're not mothers. And this is really, really important in loads of societies. And it seems to be quite under-researched. So there are, like, hunter-gatherer societies where there's a lot more allo-parenting, where it's parenting in groups. So there's not even really one specific caregiver. Your baby will be cared for by maybe 12 different people. And grandmothers will be able to lactate. So they'll... And it's just by, like, having the nipples stimulated very often. Women who have had a baby before at some point they'll just lactate again so they can nurse their infants. Or your friend who's had a baby once can nurse the infant. Interesting. And, and the idea is so that weird. if you live in like a society, then it's useful for more than one person to be able to do that, right? Is that the idea? Yeah. I think it's a little bit of uh, survival wasn't as guaranteed. So if your mum dies, then mm. you can just latch on to someone else. But also, I guess it's just a different way cultures develop. Like the Aka people who are in Central Africa, I don't think we've talked about them before. They're the ones who have fathers who spend as much time with the babies as the mothers. And there's, they're totally interchangeable, their roles. And they're always holding their kids. So they're in contact with kids up to the age of one and a half for like 97% of the time. They're either touching or holding. And the fathers, when they're doing it, which will be about 50% of the time, they will let the baby suckle on their nipples. So when the baby needs comforting, it just suckles on its father's teats. At least there's a use for male nipples because they have no other function. So exactly. that makes that makes a lot of sense. There's a great fact about breastfeeding, which I found out first with the first baby. If you do it continuously, it's a form of natural contraception. Did you know that? So I didn't know useful. that. Because you can't, the idea, you don't want to conceive children one after the other really quickly. That's quite bad if you're like a woman and you've gone through pregnancy. You want to kind of wait, give it, give yourself a bit of time. You know what I mean? And the lactation helps you do that, which I didn't yeah. know. That's really it's, it's smart. It's, I feel like it's not guaranteed. But... No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bank on it. I'd, <laughs> I'd, give yourself, I'd give yourself a safety net if I was you. To anyone listening, like get yourself an insurance policy. However, when I had my first, I didn't have a period for like a year. Like nice. I was, yeah, it was brilliant. I was like, I'm, I'm going to breastfeed forever. You know? <laughs> it's kind of in the um, child's interest then to carry on breastfeeding because then there aren't any more children to kind of like use up the. Oh yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah. You don't want any bastard siblings. That's why they want to keep latched on. <laughs> um. um. So Athena, you were saying that you can really tell the difference between the cries of mm. your baby and someone else's baby. This is interesting because. So, lots of animals and even lots of uh, mammals can't tell the difference between their young and other animals. So this was an experiment by someone called Susan Lingle, uh, where she played a deer through a speaker, the noise of other mammals' babies crying and, you know, making a noise. And the deer cannot tell the difference. So they will react very strongly to a baby deer, but also to a baby bat, a baby marmot, uh, a baby eland, it'll just run. It's like, oh no, there's a young mammal in trouble. And this might be because, I mean, it's be, the reason is because mammals have the same larynx or really similar larynxes until puberty. And then the difference between all the species kicks in. But before puberty, basically, it's like spread betting. You know, you parents need to respond to a cry which might be their child just in case it's their child in danger. And so if it turns out to be a baby marmot, then, um, you know, well, such is life. And it's useful <laughs> for the child because then you might yeah. get some, if you're in trouble, you might, you know, you might be a dear Bambi sort of getting in trouble because there's some 
people coming and trying to shoot you. And then a friendly bat might come along and save you. <laughs> well, you'd exactly. hope for a bear. You'd be like, oh, man, I hope, I hope the bear would come. That'd be, that'd be really useful. But this does imply that if, you know, you're walking past a certain fox cub or something, Athena, then you might start lactating. I would have thought <laughs> that certain mammals could induce lactation in the same way that certain babies could, right? I hadn't considered that. Um, the neighbours have just got a new puppy. Um, <laughs> you're in trouble so um, stock up on yeah, pads i'll have to um, go outside and i'll just say get your, get your dog out here for a second let's do a new <laughs> see how that works um babble is a weird thing babies babble right and that it kind of starts to imitate language i guess and i think people can tell if babies are babbling in their own language so if i heard a five-month-old making nonsense noises I should be able to tell whether it's an English speaker or a non-English mm. speaker because, again, they imitate like the quality, the tone, the timbre of the voice in which they're speaking. But it's really interesting because babies of deaf parents who speak sign language babble in sign language. So whereas like you'll have like a five-month-old baby who doesn't know any sign language, has never seen sign language, they'll just randomly clench their fists and like splay their hands out. Sign language babies will kind of babble. So they'll make signs a little bit like words, but that don't specifically mean anything yet. But with like quite deliberate, like they're practicing trying to learn it. But baby sign is a thing that you can teach your babies how to sign. Like from about six months onwards, you can get them to tell you when they're hungry. You can get them to tell you when when they need to go toilet. Um, It takes like time and effort. But this is a true story. And I keep, I didn't do it with my first songs, couldn't be bothered. But this one now, (laughs) I was like, right, we're having such a hard time potty training the first one. I'm like, right, we're learning sign. I'm doing it. I'm investing 20 minutes a day. Um, in learn- just just tell me when you need the toilet. That's all. That's the only thing I want. That's the only thing you need. That's to it, learn. isn't it? Wow. Everything else yeah. is fine, but it's instinctive as well. So they're babies. A lot of the time, it's you just have to learn what they do instinctively. So apparently, they if a baby brings their finger to their mouth, really easy one. I'm hungry. Um, and there's another one which means I need a poo, which I've forgotten. But it can be done. I've been told. I've been told. I'm going to interview you in six months' time and see if you've actually seen this You'll be interviewing the baby. How about that? <laughs> That is, I think you mentioned over email, Athena, and I've read this thing as well about potty training babies. And I actually forgot to go back to it, but there are definitely people who don't believe in nappies at all. And there's a way of potty training babies where you just kind of let them poo whenever they want to. And and you learn when it looks like they're going to poo and then you run them to the loo and you never have to use a nappy. Which sounds great. There's a bunch of New York mothers who kind of do that. And they say for the first month or two, you do get some poo on your carpet. Sounds like a lot of jeopardy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But then you sort of train the baby to give you a sign when they're going to go to the loo. Like you say, there'll be a sort of sign they use where they point at their bum, I don't know, do a little heart. And then it's like you've got to run them to a toilet. Yeah, yeah, laminate floors. That's what I'd say for that one. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real key. If you haven't got laminate, I'd probably just get some pampers. Uh, yeah. But nappies are really wasteful. Like I think a baby goes Terrible. through, through, you know, in well, first of all, in the eighties, babies used to potty train at around eighteen months because, you know, up at that point, because people used to use terry towels and things like that, and terry towels get wet, so babies are like, oh, this is horrible, and they're like, you know what, let, let me get me on the toilet. This is disgusting, and they're also harder to crawl in, so they're not as mobile, so uncomfortable. But now we use kind of these nappies that are really comfortable, so I understand they're comfortable. They're really dry. They make. They allow babies to be mobile. The average age for potty training now is about between two and three. So it's we've so you're saying doubled. they've been indulged. Well, they... yeah, absolutely. Well, indulge obviously to make more money for companies that make nappies, but that's incredible, right? Like babies that used to train oh at eighteen God. months now train at three years. 
Yeah, that's the wow. super villain plot line. Do you want a company that's investing in making nappies so good that people never take them off? I know. That's what I was thinking. There's new smart nappies that have oh, just been invented God. by Pampers. They're called Lumi. And I reckon once these are in, you're literally, until you're in your early 20s, you're going to be wearing no, them. Stop. Um, Is this where they text you, James? Well, they Is tell you, yeah. Ones? They tell you. They text the parents saying... I have chat myself. Yes. And then... well, if, I, if I'm so far from my baby that I need to be texted, that means someone it's someone else's job. Why are you texting me? I've paid the sitter to deal with that. Why are you texting me for? It should just text the nearest phone, shouldn't it? To the baby. Yeah. Uh, but then everyone, of course, because it's a smart thing, everyone's worried about hackers and that someone might hack. What? possible what possible data can the hackers get that's going to help them on this unless they're working for big pamper and maybe well all it can really do is tell you how often this individual child shits themselves or pisses themselves but the idea could be that it might be attached to your phone and then using your phone they might be able to get your bank details maybe it feels it feels like a stretch it feels like if i was a hacker this wouldn't be the first thing i would hack in order to get to the purse strings you know yeah, getting bank details through a baby's bottom does feel like a roundabout <laughs> way. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that traditional Ethiopian households can spend up to nine hours a day on coffee ceremonies. Wow. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh, come on. Nine hours. This is a lie. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> They wouldn't get anything done. Um, so I should specify, I asked far too many people about this. I actually ended up interviewing four separate people who have lived in Ethiopia or Ethiopian. And basically, coffee ceremonies are a massive part of life in Ethiopia. And they can last up to three hours. So the first hour is roasting the coffee. And then you kind of grind it and make it. And then it's all about sitting around, having a chat, debating politics, what have you. And so you'll do that. And then, particularly in rural places, you might do it three times a day. So breakfast, lunch and dinner time. Now, you probably aren't doing it three times a day, every day for three hours because you wouldn't be able to hold down a job. No, um, Maybe they have like a Nespresso machine for day-to-day stuff. And then yeah. for the special occasions, they do the three-hour thing, no? Yeah, yeah, May- very Maybe possibly. it's a lockdown thing, you know, it's a lockdown. <laughs> you might as well spend nine yeah. hours a day. Yeah. You're right, it's a good idea. How how do we fill our time? Let's drag this out for a while. The queues at Starbucks in Ethiopia must be absolutely enormous. <laughs> Can you imagine? If there's one person in front of you, that's your day's <laughs> And after all that time, they still get your name wrong. Yeah. <laughs> three hours. Come on. <laughs> I spoke to one guy who runs this place called Kaffa Coffee, which is actually this really nice uh, Ethiopian coffee, um, what do you like, van in Dalston. Mm. Um, anyway, he was great. So he was, I was asking him about it and holding up the queue behind me. And he was saying that actually how it would work, where he was from anyway, is that you'd be in your village and you would hear the first person to get up and start roasting the beans because it makes a really loud noise. You've got a very, very hot pan. And when the beans crash onto it, they really crackle at first. And once you hear that person, you're like, okay, someone else is doing the coffee today. I don't have to. And you'll bring your leftovers from the night before from the meal if you've got some bread left over and you'll sort of swap that for some coffee. And... Hang out doing that, so that makes more sense. Like it's not every single household is doing that many times a day. Cool. Kaffa actually is the name of the region, isn't it, in Ethiopia where coffee originated? I think, and actually, it's where we and almost every country in the world gets the word for coffee. 
is from this place, Kaffa. Wow, makes Um, sense. We have said before, just in case there's a pedant out there, that coffee originated in Yemen, and there is some hot debate between those two countries about it, and (laughs) you can engage with that if you want. What I think, and... You know, I don't want to get into a conflict with the Yemenis or the Ethiopians, but I think the coffee plant was really found in Ethiopia, but then modern day coffee, or actually not even modern day coffee, but, you know, early modern coffee came from Yemen, the drink. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Well, that it sounds, sounds... sounds like you're determined to not pick a side in this conflict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, quite cool in this coffee ceremony as well. The traditional ceremony has three rounds. And the first round is where you get your strongest cup and then you re-pour the water so it's a weaker cup for the second round. Oh. And then the weakest is the last round. And they're called Abol, Tonna and Bereka. And that is, according to their legend, the name of the three goats who invented coffee, according to Ethiopian legend. Again, I did ask this guy and he was like, yeah, 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 the goats. They're, they're the names of the goats. Um, and the idea is that like over a thousand years ago, a goat herder saw his goats acting all jumpy and twitchy and weird. And then he saw that they'd eaten these cherries sitting next to them and they were the coffee cherries. And so he brought them to some monks. See, this is just like the eggs. It's just like the thousand year egg being discovered completely by mistake. No one is ever willing to admit I grew a plant and I (laughs) experimented with hundreds of ways of cooking it. And this is the one I discovered. It's my work that's done this. It's always, oh, there's a a magic plant and the goats happen to be sprightly. What what makes me laugh about that story is that he saw his goats were dancing. He was like, I want what they're having. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't go near it personally myself, but um, thank goodness that person did. Exactly. The mind of a great inventor always wants to mimic the dancing goat. Um, have you guys heard of the women's petition against coffee? This is a, a, it was a pamphlet that was published in, in England in 1674. And it was, at a, it was at a time when coffee was quite controversial because coffee houses, as I think Anna said, they allow discussion of all sorts. Politics is one thing. So, you know, it might you might be discussing politics and you might decide that you don't like the king very much or whatever. So political discussion was dangerous. And anyway, this women's petition against coffee was published in 1674, which claimed all sorts of stuff. It said coffee makes a man as unfruitful as the deserts whence that unhappy berry is said to be brought. So it sort of damages men's fertility. Uh, Or that when a woman approaches the nuptial bed, expecting a man that should answer the vigour of her flames, she, why should she only meet a bed full of bones and hug a meagre useless corpse strong stuff wow. about coffee but yeah i know um the weird thing is it probably wasn't by women um it's written in a way which implies that it's written by a man sort of ventriloquizing women like oh it makes men so gossipy they're more gossipy than us women who are writing this petition like, it's in that kind of vein um and yeah and also another... was it was yeah. it in the petition the thing about meeting an old skeleton corpse in bed that was in the petition yeah that, see, that doesn't sound like a woman to me. That feels like a relief if what you're meeting is sort of skeletal mess. Yeah. He doesn't want to do anything. And also, that sounded very much like a man. And also, coffee's supposed to make you live longer, so you're less likely to meet a skeleton. He'll be, be full of life. And vitality. These, are all, these are all arguments against I, the women's petition. I yeah. also thought if you drank lots of coffee, you turned into George Clooney. Is that not, That's what TV's taught me. Yeah, that's Keep correct. drinking it, James. Keep going. <laughs> That's You're so nearly close. there. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? I'm doing nine hours a day, so I should be by now. <laughs> that or um, Anthony Head. Do you remember those old adverts? Oh, Anthony yeah. Head in house? Of course. Anthony Head. Is he the guy from Buffy? Yeah. 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 But he's, no, he's the guy from the Nescafe sexy couple flirting adverts, really. 
Yeah. That does ring a bell. He was quite an anxious character in Buffy, so bad person to advertise coffee, whereas George Clooney is much more chill. <laughs> That's true, but why do you think he was anxious, Anna? It's that delicious Nescafe, isn't it? He was off his head on Nescafe all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. Or withdrawing. So coffee withdrawal is a thing, which I don't drink enough coffee, I don't think, to get serious withdrawal, but you, you've quit before, Andy, haven't you? I've quit. I'm currently quit. You're currently quit. Are you yeah, yeah. you seem like you've got the shakes. You've been acting yeah. very old. Is that is that why? Have you ever been? Had... You've never been properly on it, though, have you? Or have you? No, I was. I was oh, for yeah. years and years. I just drinking several a day, and then when you stop, you just have a headache for two weeks, and then and then that's that. Yeah, I can vouch for that. I, I I quit drinking coffee. They're, it's very inconsistent. The advice. You, some people say you can have, you can have coffee when you're pregnant. Some people can say say you can't. But I just quit anyway. I thought I'd quit, and then my teeth would stop being yellow. Um, so that'd be the advantage. And I got a headache. Yeah, it, you feel yeah. unwell when you stop drinking that as much caffeine as you used to. Absolutely. But did you feel less awake or less alert or less focused or anything? Yeah, but that's probably due to the fact I was growing a human. You know, yeah. like, it's yeah. like, to be honest, I started drinking coffee again uh, recently and I think it's all a bit of mythology, really. I don't think it makes you any more alert or awake. I just think you just get um, a bit attached to the kind of your brain getting a bit hot, wired, you know, but I'm not, I'm yeah. not more productive when I'm like, I'm not more productive when I'm shaking like a leaf. Like, <laughs> if anything, yeah. I'm less productive. Well, some people, it does seem to work for some people. I kind of agree. It makes me twitchy and endlessly sort of Google weird health symptoms wrong with me rather than do actual work but oh. michael pollan who's the brilliant uh, food writer who wrote a book called caffeine which is an audiobook actually he is a huge coffee fan and he quit while writing the book and it almost ruined the actual book which i like a book on caffeine was almost destroyed by caffeine withdrawal but he Why? basically said that um he felt like he wasn't even writing in his first language anymore everything was so like words didn't hang together properly there was this fog between him and reality he lost all confidence and he thought this whole book's a completely stupid idea i'm gonna stop writing it i, and, I mean that is a symptom of writing a book yeah, where you, yeah. Think it's stupid and you shouldn't write it anymore i don't i think he might be blaming the coffee so that he can plug his book about coffee yeah. yeah, that literally sounds like imposter syndrome. Like that's <laughs> just what he described. <laughs> you old cynics. I felt sorry for him. Uh, no, I didn't. But he did tell me why coffee apparently does keep you awake, which again, I've always thought it sends me to sleep. But I didn't know that it was um, that we basically have a neurotransmitter, like a chemical which sends your body a signal, which is called adenosine, which is what tells you to go to sleep. So it slots into a little receptor in your body, uh, which is just the right size for it, and tells you to go to sleep. And caffeine, the chemical, is exactly the right shape to fit into that receptor. So when you drink caffeine, it slips into there ahead of the sleep chemical. And so it stops the sleep chemical getting in. So it just doesn't tell your body to go to sleep. That's but then, really clever. That, yeah, it's so cool, isn't it? Didn't know that. Do you think? Okay, here's a question for you. Do you think you can flush out caffeine by drinking decaf? No. no a... What? No, no, no. Well, you can't. You're all right in your assumption. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> what? I was just checking. I read this online, and I thought, well, that seems very obvious and basic to me. But I was hoping one of you would fall into my. <laughs> incredibly obvious trap Wait, me, you haven't well done did Fair you ask like so, so somebody would drink a cup of like caffeinated coffee and then drink a decaf and think that balances that out that's like um. having a gin and tonic and then having a coke and being like i'm fine to drive <laughs> no no, no. don't worry officer I've, I've had 15 cokes <laughs> uh, they make a lot of coffee uh, they grow a lot of coffee in Marsnik. Uh, the island and the story of how they did that is really interesting there was a naval officer called Gabriel de Cleur 
uh, and he <laughs> decided, why is that funny? <laughs> That's a funny name. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. sounded like you'd, you'd seen a long name and you'd given up on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was doing like some French babbling or something. Yeah. Gabriel de Cleur. Uh, and he decided that he was going to take a, a, a plant from Paris because they had some in the Royal Gardens there and he was going to take it down to Martinique and grow some um, coffee plantations down there. Um, But the king didn't really want to give him any of his coffee plants because they were really valuable. So he kind of sneaked in and stole a little seedling um, from the Royal Garden. And then he decided to go to Martinique, which is a long, long way away from Paris. First of all, he was caught in a storm uh, and then they got attacked by pirates. And all the time, he's got this tiny little coffee plant that he's looking after. There was a spy from the Netherlands who went after him and tried to kill his seedling. <laughs> and Just one seedling he had? One little seedling, one little That's plant. so funny. And this little plant, like the spy, came and tried to kill him. They, Because he was at sea for a long time, they didn't have much rations. And so he took his tiny bit of water that he was allowed to drink and he would share it with his seedling. <laughs> to keep it alive uh, and then he got it to Martinique and planted it and 50 years later there were 80 million coffee trees on Martinique I can't even look after my yucca and even look after <laughs> a coffee plant on a boat good for him good for him I think that yeah, exactly. that, ha- that has the makings of a great film where he, it's one man and his seedling and yeah. you know he's on the boat and all the other sailors are looking hungrily at the seedling and they look at it and it turns into a big leg of ham before them or whatever yeah. <laughs> I can't believe he didn't even bring a spare. Take two. I can't believe that Andy, when he becomes a film director, his kind of film will have people looking at things and then turn it into massive hands. It's <laughs> strongly based on the car- the Looney Tunes. I can't oh, yeah. see you getting many Oscar nominations for that kind of movie. We'll see, we'll see. When the best ham category is launched, <laughs> thanks to my extensive lobbying campaign. Uh, and the winner for 10 years in a row, John Hamm. <laughs> Um, one more thing Um, the coffee filter was invented Mm. by a woman called Melitta Benz uh, and she according to her son you'll love this Andy because I know you love your origin stories Uh, she was trying to come up with a way of making coffee and she just got really frustrated and ripped out a page of her son's notebook from school and stuck it in an old tin pot and it just happened to make this perfect coffee and she decided that go on I I like that story yeah. because it's an innovator thinking of looking at her environment, coming up with a thing and adapting it. If it if it was going with the classic format, it would be she was trying to pour her coffee and unfortunately her son dropped his notebook and a leaf was <laughs> torn out and landed on top of the cup. And when she poured it, it caught all the grounds. And she thought, oh my God. So yeah. I, I, appro- I applaud Melissa Benz for this. Okay, fair enough. Well, <laughs> um, during World War II, the company stopped making any filters and started making supplies for the Nazis. Um, oh. Okay, when I said I applaud Melissa Benz, <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to clarify what? to a point. Wow, you don't uh, applaud her, Andy, because um, after the war, she started a program that compensated victims of a Nazi's forced labor policy. All right, so. when I said I didn't approve of her, I'd like to clarify <laughs> again. <laughs> um, coffee was officially blessed in the 17th century by the Catholic Church oh, because nice. the Pope liked it 
and you could do that. So it was kind of thought as an evil drink. It started in in Africa or in Yemen somewhere, and they were all drinking it around there. Then it got up into the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula. Everyone's drinking it. So then it came over to Catholic Europe, and everyone went, well, it's the drink of the infidel. And then Pope Clement VIII tasted some, and thought, right, <laughs> I love this. What am I going to do? Because um, everyone's saying this is the invention of Satan. It's awful. So he said, look, it's so delicious. That it would be awful to just let the infidels have use of it. Let's trick Satan and bless it so we turn it into a Christian drink. And he did. And that's why you go to heaven if you drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really that's interesting. Something I really, I didn't really realise this is how popular coffee is there's only one thing that's drunk more regularly than coffee and that's water it's literally the second most popular drink in the world wow is it which yeah. is incredible because yes. it doesn't taste that nice i thought it might be ribena or <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's the second most, which means that human we're doing something wrong in life to, for us to be, need to so much caffeine in our life like we we need yeah. to introduce siestas all around the world basically this is this is what we need you're yeah. right because it doesn't taste nice whatever anyone's claiming we are just doing it in order to keep ourselves awake um, let's uh, just start sleeping more. The idea of a Ribena-based society. I think it's less sexy if Anthony Head from Buffy is uh, <laughs> knocking on his neighbour's door at night saying, have you got any Bina? But he would be dressed like a massive Ribena berry, wouldn't he? <laughs> Why is that not sexy? His, his little arm sticking out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. George Clooney and that's still sexy. I think we can all agree. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the week, and that is Andy. My fact is that the 18th century grammarian Alexander the Corrector carried a sponge wherever he went, just in case he spotted any offensive graffiti. (laughs) Uh, He sounds great. He's my hero. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He was a Scottish author. His, His name was Alexander Crudden. Uh, C-R-U-D-E-N he was a, an author proofreader and you can see why he sort of changed his mnemonic <laughs> to the corrector can't you he yeah he was a bookseller he was a stationer um, he was eccentric definitely he was famous for having written a, a concordance to the bible which is an index of the bible <laughs> um, we'll get on to that later but also oh, he carried let's, around a sp- let's get on to it now yeah oh, come no, on okay right, let's <laughs> He wrote an index to the Bible. He wrote a, a verbal index of the Bible. So he took every single word of the King James Bible, apart from, you know, the and of, and, you know, really sort of nuts and bolts ones. Every single other word, you know, shoe or ham or whatever, he, he made Ham's an index. Ham's a good one because the there's son of Noah was called Son ham. of Noah. I knew you were going to bring that up. I don't know if ham and ham would have different entries. <laughs> in his I suspect it would. He, he knew what he was doing. Um, yeah, it's three times as long as the actual Bible. And um, it just tells you which words appear where in the Bible. That's like only the really hardcore fans read that one. It's like people who've read the Silmarillion uh, over Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Oh, you might have read the Bible, but... Have you read read it in alphabetical order? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Such a weird thing to do. It took them 12 years, didn't it? Unsurprising. Um, And it was like all of... All of the word all, for instance, he recorded. So he includes some pretty irrelevant words in there. Yeah. 
But the thing is, the Bible's already indexed. It's like Proverbs, Mark, John, Luke. Like it's already in sections. Yeah, yeah. It's, in, well, it's in chapters. That's a, that's a you're content, right. But it's, you know, you're you're making the classic mistake of confusing contents and index. And Alexander <laughs> oh, the Corrector I, I, would be turning in his grave right now. You'd be corrected. Dan, Dan yeah. wouldn't have done that. Dan wouldn't. Um, but yeah, this is, <laughs> it's taken this long for us to feel his loss. Um, yeah, yeah, he was he was weird. So he didn't like grammar mistakes either. He didn't like grammar mistakes and he didn't like uh, offensive graffiti. And he had a, his own very idiosyncratic interpretation of what offensive was. So he didn't like the number 45, which at the time, lots of people were writing. That was on the main that... one, wasn't it? The number 45 was. was the main thing that he hated the most. He only liked LPs, didn't he? He didn't like... <laughs> <laughs> he Maybe he predicted... 45. Did he predict Donald Trump's presidency and hated That's that? That's exactly oh. it. He hated that. It's nothing to do with that. It's because of John Wilkes, the radical. Um, John Wilkes was a radical author at the time, and he had written a work attacking the monarchy, which had been published in issue number 45 of a magazine called mm. The North Britain, which published, you know, exciting political content. So 45 became a bit of a rallying cry for anti-monarchists at the time. People would write 45 on, on walls and doors and floors and things like that. But if Alexander <laughs> the Corrector spotted it with his sponge, he'd get rid of it immediately. What do you think he would do if, like, just your house number was number 45? <laughs> <laughs> I don't you know, know. Sometimes, and you've got 45 when you wheelie bin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just stop you from nicking it. And he keeps coming around and like taking it off. Like, no. Such a good point. Such a good point. Also, the Jacobite Rising was 1745, which was another reason why they ah, used this number. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. why he did it in that issue. He waited. He printed 44 issues of this pointless <laughs> magazine so he could get to 45 and make an obscure reference. He was an illiest. Do you guys know what an Iliad is? Oh, um, no. You want to guess? It, oh, did he like the Iliad? I would uh, guess that. Yeah, that's did, a good guess. Did he like Illy Coffee? That's a coffee brand. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's actually closer because that's the correct spelling. Um, so you're definitely getting warmer, but still quite cold. So I'm going to tell you. Um, an Iliad is someone who always refers to themselves in the third person. So yeah. it's like Illy from Latin, oh. I double L E. Okay. I hate him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I just, I'm, you've said it all. He's a grammar police, which, you know, he'd be good on Twitter. Um, yeah. He keeps getting my wheelie bins nicked and he speaks in third person. No, I can't stand the man. Yeah, he's not likable. He's he not. wasn't popular at the time either, to be fair. You're matching the opinion of him then because he was yeah. he was institutionalized several times and there's lots of debate over whether, you know, was he really um, got ill or uh, hence him being put in an institution or was he being put there by his enemies? And there's a biographer called Julia Kay who argues that he was put away not because he was ill. I mean, he sounds pretty eccentric, sounds pretty out there. But on one occasion, he was put away by, um, I think, the brother of a woman he was trying to propose to or trying to marry. Uh -huh. But he had discovered that the woman he was trying to propose to was sleeping with her own brother. And he raised a big old stink about this and then was put in an asylum for it. Yeah, so that was the first time. But then later on, he was put in an asylum for unwelcome attentions to a widow. And then another time for attacking a man with a shovel. And then a third time for he formed an emotional attachment to a woman without even having met her first. Uh, and he then called himself, instead of Alexander the Corrector, Alexander the Conqueror, and decided that this woman was his predestined partner in life and tried to um, get together with her, even though she didn't know who he was. Okay, 
all right. I mean, <laughs> but that first time it was just <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but there is like in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, they think that that they say that that first time is what kind of threw him over the edge a little bit, and from then on, yeah. Well, he wanted to regulate private madhouses, mm. and supposedly the fact he didn't manage to improve private madhouse regulation made him very depressed, which then meant he was sent to Bedlam again. Although, as James points out, hitting people with a shovel and forming unwelcome attachments to women will also do it. Um, That'll do the trick. So he was a complicated, he wasn't an unproblematic fave, is yep. what I'm trying to say. Fair. Fair. <laughs> Fair assessment. But I'm impressed that in those days you were able to form attachments to people you hadn't met romantically pre-internet. How are you doing that? I see what you mean. It was the daughter of Sir Thomas Abney of Newington, who was the Lord Mayor of London. So basically, he'd heard of the Lord Mayor's daughter, possibly seen her in some periodicals, and decided that Mm. that was his future wife. Uh, He called her uh, Princess Elizabetha and said that her home was a place called Silesia, which he would besiege. I have the same thing about Daniel Craig. (laughs) You know, so I, I think that's... That's fine. I think it's understandable. You know, you're planning I'm, to besiege Daniel Craig's house because it's probably a public service we're doing. No, it's not. People. It's not his house. It's our house. We live together. <laughs> right. Yes. Got it. It's been okay. a happy. It's been our happy spousal home for a few years now. Actually, um. opens the door dressed as a massive black current trying to make Ribena for you. Um, um, yeah. So that's Alexander. Uh, so on, um, I should say he's an iliast. Sorry, just to go a long way back to him referring to himself in the third person, because oh, yeah. mm. I wouldn't want you to think badly of him. I don't know if he did it in speech. He just did it in the book he wrote, which I read a decent portion of, which had the catchy title, uh, The Corrector's Earnest Address to the Inhabitants of Great Britain, showing that the late earthquakes and the fact we are at war with a powerful nation are a loud call from divine providence for a speedy and thorough reformation. And actually, it actually goes on. But um, it was basically saying, look, we've had some earthquakes, we're at war. This is clearly because you guys aren't abiding by my... um, grammatical correction and that whole thing he refers to a lot of stuff that's happened in his life but he always calls himself the corrector he would write pamphlets as well called things like mr crudham greatly injured or the adventures of alexander the corrector which is practically a comic book writing a pamphlet about yourself and calling it the adventures of yeah it is and then I think that was just about how his sister tried to have him sectioned or had him sectioned. So it's disappointing if you think you're getting an adventure book and you get a, like, an annoying sibling rivalry. Yeah, imagine if the Avengers were like that. <laughs> it, was just, it was just Iron Man's brother stealing his trainers. Like, that's my, there's a, you know, get your own shoes. Captain yeah. America turns up yeah. with a sponge. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on graffiti... Mm. Um, some stuff on that. I was going through my old files and stuff on graffiti and the ancient Roman graffiti seemed to so often be about discouraging public excretion. So Roman graffiti includes uh, the phrase, anybody urinating here will incur the wrath of Mars. To the one defecating here, beware the curse and shit with comfort and good cheer so long as you don't do it here. Wow. And... So, so it, it seems like, like graffiti in those days was doing a public good. Yeah, it's like no ball games kind of thing, isn't it? It's just trying to stop people from doing bad things around your house. Exactly. No turning yeah. in this driveway. That's that's my favourite <laughs> one that people put up. <laughs> this yeah. this uh, this gate's permanently in use. Permanently in use. If it was permanently in use, I couldn't read the sign. Get out of here. <laughs> I was in a really beautiful place in the Cotswold recently, going for a walk on my own in a wood, and there was a massive tree 
And it was like, and it's Cotswolds, you know, it's like David Cameron territory and like Bluebell Wood. And someone had carved in giant capital letters into the tree, Millwall. <laughs> I just thought that is so great. I'm so glad Millwall fans are going that far afield to st- and, uh, make their stamp. Underneath it, it said, get your parliamentary favours here. Call Dave on 01. <laughs> <laughs> will that still be relevant when this goes out? Probably. Definitely. It will keep, we'll keep it relevant. We'll keep it in the news. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've seen some uh, celebrity graffiti, which is very exciting. Ooh. I saw something that Lord yeah. Byron wrote. Um, really? There's a place in Greece called the Temple of Poseidon. And he carved his name really big and florid um, into the column of this 4,000-year-old temple, which is pretty disrespectful. But it's surrounded by other names because it was just the thing you did at the time. So, yeah. If Byron does it, it's kind of okay, isn't it? I bet the council got really pissed off with all the other people who did it. But when Byron yeah, did he's it. like the Banksy of the 19th century. Or, You're right. Isn't You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That Banksy, um, he did a load of graffiti just in Waterloo, in that tunnel in Waterloo. I don't know if you remember. It was like oh, yeah. one did of he? the first things. Yeah. And then I went to see it when it happened. And then within, we started filming QI and I saw it right at the start. And by the time we'd finished filming, it had already been covered, I think, three or four times by other people wow. putting graffiti on. And that was kind of the point. He was like, this is now a graffiti place and just put whatever you want here. Um, yeah. But we've come up with a new way of using hydrogel which is like this amazing kind of substance and you put it on the wall and it just sticks to the top covering of paint and it can take that off and you can see the graffiti that's on underneath that graffiti (sighs) no so in theory you could keep going taking layers and layers and layers off this um i think it's called leaky passage or something isn't it leaky tunnel or something in i think you're right yeah yeah. Uh, you'll be able to get to the banksies again that would be awesome Cool. I used to work for Camden Council and Banksy put um, did some graffiti on the side of a shop and um, I used to work in the street team that used to do with waste and street cleaning and obviously our guys cleaned that off right and the <sighs> shop owners tried to sue Camden they oh. were like what did you you got rid of a Banksy we were going to cover it with glass and like make loads of money I don't know what happened that's with that. so funny I find it really incredible that the point of graffiti is that it sort of lives out in public but now because it's because of capitalism people are like no no we're going to preserve that yeah. and we're going to put yeah. perspex on it mm. and we're going to we're going to make it uh, make get rich off of it which is hilarious I can't believe you were at, that's, all, that's always reported on I can't believe you were one of those people who cleaned a Banksy off it always creates this massive controversy doesn't it and Banksy's just there in the sidelines chuckling away but whenever like, Banksy does anything it. Athena goes along with her sponge doesn't she <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, I, I, well not just Banksy everybody <laughs> <laughs> Can I correct some, just correct some grammar broadly yeah. before we finish? Um, oh, which is whose well, grammar this, are you going to correct? This thing that I'm pointing to here. Bicep. What is it? I'd say bicep. Yeah, absolutely incorrect, guys. Oh, God. This is not a bicep. This is a biceps. And whenever you hear someone refer to a singular bicep, <gasps> you can correct them and stick that S on the end. Biceps literally means two-headed, two biceps, headed. There are always two heads. It's never just unicep. Wow. And it's just because the muscle's got two, like, connecting oh, bits. James, so you've one... just been paninoed. Oh, <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> I, that was an amazing moment. <laughs> well, if Anna didn't have such impressive biceps, then maybe I wouldn't have done <laughs> I, yeah, oh, I threw on. you off your game with that. You said bicep, implying that you think they're so small, <laughs> it only qualifies as one. Good point, yeah. There's, there's only one on each side. So though. you have to say, I pulled my left biceps, as opposed to... 
Exactly. Mm. Even if you pulled your right one. <laughs> no, that's not true. I just call mine guns. <laughs> <laughs> I avoid all of that. Okay, that's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will be back again next week. If you're lucky, you might get another guest. If you're unlucky, you might get Dan Schreiber back. But until then, you can find these guys on their Twitter accounts. James? At James Harkin. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. Athena, have you got Twitter? I do, at Athena Kablenu. Athena Kablenu. And you can contact me by emailing podcast at qi.com. You can also go to our website, no such things fish.com, to listen to all our other episodes. Pick up a, a hoodie or a cap or a vinyl, whatever bit of merch you like. And you can also book tickets to the Podcast Stop Festival show we're going to be doing. So go to qi.com slash fish events for that. Okay, thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye.